Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, the Smart Cities podcast is the only podcast dedicated to all things smart cities. The podcast is the creation of ARC Advisory Group's Smart City Practice. ARC advises leading companies, municipalities, and governments on technology trends and market dynamics that affect their business and quality of life in their cities. To engage further, please like and share our podcast or reach out directly on Twitter at Smart City Viewpoints or on our website at www.arcweb.com backslash industries backslash smart dash cities. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of ARC's Smart City Podcast. I'm Jim Frazier, Vice President of Smart Cities here at ARC Advisory Group. And today we're very happy to be joined by Dr. Melissa Wiley, uh, a data scientist who's going to enlighten us not only about uh, data analytics and data science, but also um, shed some light on uh, the application of data analytics to our world of the uh, COVID-19 virus. So, Melissa, welcome today. Thanks, Jim. I really appreciate you uh, letting me come on and and talk a little bit. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, It's fairly motley. I do consider myself a data scientist, Um, not a medical doctor of any sort, Um, no medical training, though I have spent some time in bioinformatics and biostatistics. Um, Kind of coming at this from various angles. Um, I recently had brain surgery at Mayo, and I also have a very close friend who's only 39 who has stage four terminal breast cancer. And I spent a good bit of time with the National Children's Study and its sequel, The Environmental Child Health Outcomes, funded by NIH, and have done a good bit of work, uh, community-based participatory research with the Marshallese in Northwest Arkansas. Um, who happened to be the victims, for lack of a better word, of the Manhattan Project and nuclear fallout. Oh, and wow. I've seen many of them um, pass away during this time. And so I have a lot of interest in keeping up with what's going on and using what I know about data science to hopefully make a difference. That's great. That's great. So, so just foundationally, um, you know, we hear uh, a whole lot about derived business intelligence from data, and what's uh, I think implicit there and foundational is analyzing that data, or more formally, data analytics. So, what really is data analytics? Well, to be clear, a lot of people um, confuse it with profit and think, well, if we have you know business intelligence is going to mean more money for our company, but that's not what it's about foundationally. It's the science of analyzing raw data to make conclusions. So it's different than analysis, it, you know, data analysis or statistical analysis in the respect that you're trying to find a conclusion. In, in some types of analysis, you may just be looking to describe or investigate. Um, there are actually four types of data analytics, uh, descriptive, can be, but you need to have an a priori conclusion. Uh, there's diagnostic, where you're trying to maybe run a root cause analysis, figure out what's causing something else to occur. There's predictive, which we're all pretty familiar with. We want to forecast the future. 
And then there's prescriptive, where we wanna find out what's going to help a certain situation. Um, but really what data analytics do is help businesses and organizations optimize performance. To, and they have the data to make better decisions and to innovate. Uh, they're not just reliant on hunches or the experience of those who work for that particular company, but data. And the data can drive many uh, solutions that we hadn't thought of before. Uh, couple that with machine learning and it's pretty magnificent. Well, one, one of your roles is um, uh, leading the data analytics effort for uh, a city in Florida. That's um, true. So what, what's the impact and um, the use cases of data analytics for, for cities and, uh, you know, and in this new term of smart cities? Well, really, we, we try to take feedback from the citizens. We call them neighbors and draw on that as well as best practices and data that we have access to, whether that be federal, regional, local, to be able to understand the implications of various options, do some scenario-based planning, um, and come up with the, the option that the data indicates will have the, the highest benefit with the lowest risk. I also serve on the um, Alachua County Healthcare Advisory Board um, with a you know a number of leaders with the health department and the local um, medical facilities, and so I do get some of that that medical uh, angle and discussion. But I do I mean I'm very active in the field and have you know went into the field because I always wanted to know the answer to everything, and data will really um, allow us to do that. Wow. Um, let, let me go back to the four types of data analytics for a moment. Um, so can you give us an example? Um, you went over those fair, a little quickly, but what's an example of a descriptive data analytics? And we'll, we'll go through each, each one of these because I think this is fascinating. Right. Um, if we apply it to uh, the pandemic, which is on everyone's mind, okay. descriptive would be uh, surveillance understanding how many people have contracted the virus, how many people have died from the virus, you know, what types of um, underlying conditions predispose one to being susceptible. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's number one. And yeah. then we have diagnostic. Diagnostic. So that would be taking COVID and then looking at various treatments, um, looking at medications, or respiratory implements. Um, maybe it's just more or less uh, wait and see, or you know, sometimes putting a, an innovator, intubating someone can make them more sick. You know, so they have to take a lot of um, characteristics of patients into consideration to effectively diagnose the best treatment for that person. Okay. And we're getting to where that's called precision medicine. Okay. And then we have both predictive and prescriptive. Can you give us a, an example of each of those? We've all seen a lot of predictive in the news. Um, various Indeed. modeling has, has occurred um, with the initial cohorts of outbreak in um, Asian countries. 
And so they use those models to say if, if things stay the same or if they follow certain parameters that are set a priori, uh, we expect the, this many people to come into contact with the virus. So we're predicting it within a certain range of confidence. But okay. of course, we can't be sure. And then prescriptive, I think we know all fairly well. Sure. Yeah. It, it, yeah, would really just be how do, how do we get rid of this? <laughs> what do we do now? Right. Now, um, I don't know. I'm sorry if I if I interrupted you, but we were in the um, when I asked for those four, we were in the midst of uh, discussing, you know, you know, what do data analytics do for for smart cities and public agencies? Um, well, <laughs> data analytics and technology are really the cornerstone of what makes the city smart. Um, it's really the technology and the people and the combination of those two. You know, to be complementary, um, data for good. Uh, smart cities are able to better manage mobility and um, sustainable food supply. Many, many things. You could speak on that much longer than I I can. Uh, but if we even think of just social media, uh, you know, and its ability to disseminate a message faster than our generation ever thought possible, I won't bring up the fact that I had a party line growing up, because most people won't know what that is. Um, but, it, you know, it, it helps cities be connected, be holistically connected, so that they always have this sense of what's going on right now um, that can help public safety make better predictions about when they may need um, additional uh, fire trucks or uh, police efforts, things like that, that can really help protect the safety of uh, citizens. Wow. So the purpose is to use it for smart things, <laughs> right. to improve the lives of people. So, so Melissa, um, since we're, um, you know, discussing data analytics, let's move towards um, using examples, well, perhaps the most interesting example we have today, which is the world of COVID-19. How does data analytics, you know, in your in your experience, given given your respective roles, how has data analytics uh, been applied to this new COVID nineteen ecosystem we all are unfortunately uh, living through? Well, in some cases it has been applied, and in other cases it has not, and we will talk about that a bit later. Um, but when we are talking about technology, particularly in tandem with viruses they have one significant thing in common they they both have exponential growth we've seen that with technology and that's what we know to be true about viruses it's you know one person can infect six people who can infect you know right so on and so forth um and and technology has been the same the same way it boy that upswing was really quick between Gosh, I guess a satellite dish and then a mobile phone, you know, just seem mm -hmm. like a, a right. blink of an eye. Uh, but for as an example uh, of this exponential growth curve, Texas, you know, one of the states, along with my home state, Florida, that are the epicenters of the U.S. pandemic at the moment, um, they've, they've recorded almost 4,000 deaths since it started. Nearly 20% of those deaths 
were reported in the last week. So the longer it goes and the more we pull back um, efforts, the only efforts we have that are known to uh, reel back containment, you know, better sustained containment efforts, um, the, the quicker it's going to go. So hmm. it's really interesting that, I mean, so we can look at this as a, a catastrophe or maybe an opportunity because the pandemic may permanently normalize the, the comprehensive societal use of digital technologies. We may kind of, it may be at the tipping point where things that have been difficult to grasp onto and make everyday's business um, just, well, what do they say? Necessity is the mother of invention, or was in this case adoption. Um, so technology has the ability to scale up traditional epidemiological methods, and if we can do some of those techie things that people are afraid of due to privacy, it offers a way to relax some of the non-medical interventions or non-technological interventions, such as lockdown or social distancing you know, without sacrificing the safety of the citizens. And I think we've seen very clearly during the, the lockdowns or the um, shelter in place orders that have occurred, that economic progress is absolutely facilitated by technology. And if we look at the stock market, the, most of the stocks that are going up and, the, and you know, the economy hasn't completely crashed, is investment in technology-related organizations, firms, corporations. Um, so, you know, we've seen the transition from working in the office to working at home. That would not be possible without technology like Zoom or GoToMeetings, various mm -hmm. others. Um, we can, that same thing has occurred in the educational system, allowing students to continue to um, learn something, we can bring something in, have something to be uh, occupied with and, and meaningful. And then we've seen social media, everybody's on it now. I mean, it's a, you have a captive audience if you have a strategic message. And I think of, um, I guess, the Trump rally in Tulsa where TikTok users bought up all the tickets and, you know, I'm not familiar with the, the granular details, but we're able to, you know, make a statement uh, with social media. Hmm. And then my, my favorite, fortunately, is public service delivery. You know, I'm very grateful for the folks who are able to bring groceries and food, um, various other items. That has been a lifesaver for many of us, medicines for the elderly and others. And it's allowed us to better forecast supply chain issues that may come up um, and balance it with the demand. Maybe make some alternate choices on suppliers and locations, things like that. So the reason we're kind of hanging on right now is because of technology. Agreed. So, so Melissa, as you know, in your role as a public sector data analyst, 
Um, what are you learning about the novel coronavirus? You know, what what's being revealed in your data sets? Well, as I've had to do research um, for the city and for the county healthcare advisory board, and for, for my friend and I, um, I I've learned a good bit about it. Um, but there's a lot we don't know about it. We we do know the route of transmission, and it may be spread. Uh, you may maybe air aerosol. The incubation period we're pretty familiar with. It's two to three weeks, which really um, confounds any sort of containment efforts. People can be asymptomatic and be walking around not knowing they're positive for weeks, which puts them into contact with lots and lots of folks. And there's a, a wide breadth of symptomology. Every day, a new symptom comes out and you'll read, if you have these two symptoms, it's a surefire way to know that you have COVID. Um, and because it does attack the body's immune system, which controls everything, you know, it's running through the lymphatic system, all organs can be impacted. We're seeing more cardiovascular manifestations, neurological manifestations. And of course, this has um, a much higher risk for those who already have some underlying conditions. But, you know, we, we do know that Technology is helping us with this so far by being able to predict who might be um, the most severe case, who's going to need some of those ICU resources, and who may not, um, just by some of those utilizing some of those risk factors and using predictive modeling or predictive data analytics. So we know some. We we know enough to manage, um, but not yet cure. So some of those predictive models are are in fact being built and used today. They are, yeah. The the, the medical um, field is using them more so than the re the rest of it. Sure, sure. I'm sure so what else? Your, again, so Melissa, well. again, from your perspective, then let's ask the other side of the of that uh, equation is, um, you know, what were what uh, known unknowns do you have, and what unknown unknowns could you venture a guess about? Yeah, there's so much that we don't know. Um, that's why they call it novel. We still don't know where it came from. Uh, I don't know how important that's going to be going forward. Um, we don't know the comprehensive symptomology. Like I mentioned, there, it's hit or miss. And uh, but like children have had unusual um, symptoms, such as GI tract issues or uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome that adults are not experiencing. Um, so we don't understand that individual level of susceptibility. We've seen some really healthy athletes in their in 30s or 40s die. And then we've seen, you know, a woman who is 103 live to tell about it. Indeed. We don't know the length of the antibody activity. Uh, so it may be like the seasonal flu where we can get it over and over. We don't know how it um, mutates yet. There are, last I saw there were about four, four to five different strains of it. Um, we don't know the exact mechanism of injury for any one person. 
you may get it and it you may have something an underlying condition such as cardiovascular disease but it may attack your kidneys or your lungs or your your brain instead which we just don't know um we also wow. don't know how environmental influences such as weather air quality certain features of housing like air conditioning or um access to you know supplies that were built without heavy chemicals which we, right. we just don't really know right now how that's how that's factoring in so okay so you know the world is attempting to learn what we don't know um what barriers are there and how could data analytics overcome some of those barriers? Well, the biggest challenge is time. Uh, it, we won't know a lot until we have um, historical data to look back on and analyze and make future projections. And right now, you know, it's just it's a small pool. Um, but what, what one of the biggest things that we lack that is completely remediable is accurate, comprehensive data systems, um, you know, for a state or for a country that use consistent methodologies. You know, we've seen that every state or region or country seems to have a different way of measuring even percent positive. Are you counting the number of tests taken? Are you counting unique individuals who have taken a test? Are you counting duplicates? Or, you know, ICU beds has been another. Most of the methodologies are not consistent. So there's no data standardization, no harmonization among systems, which leaves error um, in the predictions, in the analyses. Uh, very much so. And then, you know, unfortunately, we've seen some misuse of data. Um, and par partially that could be due to the lack of widespread acceptability of predictive modeling and, and data analytics, its capability to uh, make human lives better. And so sometimes it's misused because you don't know how to use it. And sometimes it's misused for uglier reasons you know and we're we're seeing some pushback on some of the interventions particularly non-medical interventions that have been shown to work because there is a mistrust between government entities and especially historically underrepresented groups um, and so that's going to continue to be a challenge i believe um, it's it's interesting that you're you're yeah you're absolutely correct. Um, uh, clearly, there's a lot of stakeholder communities that are all pulling in many different directions on yeah. all of this data. Um, you know, I, I think one of the earlier you know when, when you reference that the data sets aren't um, uh, are poorly defined, and as a result, they're really they uh, are not easily uh, integratable or interoperable. Let's say. Right. You know, if we, you know, I, I would argue, and probably so, so would you, that if we had standardized data sets and data and um, standardized doc, uh, documentation processes 
then all of this pushing and pulling in various different political and business directions probably would be lessened. Agreed. Agreed. There's so much misinformation and people are getting every side of the story, all 27 sides, or, you know, people just don't know what to believe. Um, and then to make that worse, there aren't many cultural or linguistic translations of the information and materials that we do have, the accurate ones, so that we can be sure and reach our entire community. Um, I would really encourage people uh, when you're on social media, before you repost something um, or you know start commenting and get on a bandwagon, you need to check the uh, the validity and the reliability of the source. It's always best to um, rely on peer-reviewed research articles when you can, or um, government agencies like CDC or um, organizations, professional organizations are a good go-to. Uh, but, you know, if it came from the onion, don't please don't pass it on. <laughs> um, so, M Melissa, more, more broadly, um, in, in the data sets you work with, you know, we've, we've touched so far today on all the really core uh, coronavirus data sets. Uh, ICU beds, who's infected, who's not, how many tests have been delivered, um, how many people have died. But I can imagine in your, in your daily work, there is an ecosystem of related data sets because there are other impacts if, you know, if the hospital is uh, overcome with coronavirus patients, well, then some other people might not get treated. Or you know, uh, you know, there, all of this is interrelated. Uh, the more you're, I mean, um, you know, we know that uh, alcohol consumption has greatly increased during this period. For example, um, can you comment about about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. But I would like to piggyback on what you just said and really emphasize that we are an ecosystem. That every action has a reaction, and we're all relying on each other for the greater good to get through this, we, we must. Um, but some of those, some of those non-medical things that we're seeing are mental health, you know, with children and adolescents who are used to going to school and having a much different routine. Uh, we're seeing it with frontline healthcare professionals. The burnout is extraordinary. You know, they're putting everything on the line and, often don't get a break because they, you know, the medical system has been so over inundated. We're also, you know, seeing a spike in domestic violence hotline calls and requests for online, online service providers. Um, unprecedented precedented demand for those things um, because people are at home together and maybe if you have a large family or if things just were kind of rocky from the beginning, this is just going to magnify um, those issues. We are seeing really medical crises for vulnerable populations, such as cancer patients, uh, pregnant women, transplant patients who are either in the process or just recently received a transplant. Those folks are really, really susceptible and um, not being able to go to the doctor or receive treatments has been 
you know, a, a significant downside. And many of those professional organizations are calling for emergency efforts, uh, guidelines, different mechanisms to see cancer patients. The, uh, the professional organizations and the local groups and grassroots efforts seem to be taking off rapidly. It's like without a centralized, unified message and strategy, you're looking around to see, oh, this is my community. You know, this is relatable. I, I know these folks. And we're just seeing a lot more um, people taking charge, kind of from the bottom up, which is somewhat unusual. It, it, it is. <clears throat> so with your access to, to this data and the, and the um, dependent you know, analytics that you um, extract, or intelligence you, you, you extract, um, what does Dr. Melissa Wiley recommend as best strategies for, uh, you know, not only, you know, uh, personal, but also, your, you know, your family, your neighborhood, your community? Well, you've heard, you've heard the most um, popular ones before, and, and they are valid. Social distancing, wearing a mask is, the, is our best chance right now of getting the virus under control, you know, without a comprehensive, um, unified, centralized strategy. Washing your hands often. And uh, recent research is showing that intermittent shutdowns, um, just to not stay shut down for a long time, because that actually, uh, ha you know, eventually doesn't save lives. Uh, but doing it intermittently on the latest I've seen is a five to one ratio. If you would stay in one day, go out five days, stay in one day. We all have to work together. Really, that's the biggest message I could get out there is that there's not really an in-between. It's, it's like the era of no compromise in a way. You know, if you say you live in a home with a couple of other people, if you socially distance yourself and take all the precautions, but they don't, it doesn't matter what you've done. Um, so it's going to take all of us acting as one large family to find our way down this path, I think. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we um, we both live here in Florida, me down south and you up in uh, Gainesville. And, um, you know, I was struck by when the lockdowns basically ended here in Florida uh, in the middle of June. You know, I, I recently saw uh, a heat map. You probably saw mm -hmm. the same one yeah. that, you know, a week or two after the lockdowns ended, the younger folks, say in the 20 to 24 or more broadly 20 to 30 year age range, uh, represented the highest increase in cases over that next one or two week period. But looking at the at the map, at that heat map over the success uh, succeeding weeks, we see that that rapid increase didn't happen as much in that in that age group. It started being transmitted up towards higher age ranges. Um, and I mean, I'm not a data scientist, but I would surmise that many 20 to 24 year olds live with people that might be their parents or maybe even their grandparents. Right. right. And we know that college age kids and adolescents and even young children on sports teams and in ballet, things like that, they're just much more social than adults the majority of the time anyway. Um, and so when they went back to doing things that they normally do, there just really wasn't that thought that 
you know, because they're not at, at a high risk for fatality. Um, but yes, they are the largest um, transmitters of various outbreaks. So while they may have mild symptoms or be completely asymptomatic, they can still pass that on right to grandparents or um, other folks in their house or their community that have compromised immune systems. Sometimes people don't even know that they have a compromised immune system. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you find out the hard way. Indeed. So, um, so Melissa, um, let me ask more for your opinion rather than uh, information you've generated from data. It seems there's been so much written about different countries and their different responses. Sweden did great, and then until they didn't. <laughs> um, you know, other countries are like that too. So from what you have access to and what you've read and perhaps say even some data sets you may have received, can you comment about what other countries have done, what we're doing, what the U.S. is doing, um, and yeah, how you see absolutely. it developing? Absolutely. Like some things that I have noticed um, exploring the world are that the, the countries that are most successful in containing the pandemic are those that already have you know, widespread surveillance mechanisms. They already had a disaster plan in place. They were able to respond much quicker. They took it very seriously. Like South Korea is an example. You know, this isn't their first outbreak. So they have a history that necessitated preparation and they've done a wonderful job. Um, Germany is another country that's doing quite well. And again, they um, these countries that are successful are have a more collectivist culture where they um, believe in the greater good and things aren't so polarized with respect to uh, politics or religion or various other beliefs. Um, and so some of them have just learned from historical uh, situations. They're older countries and they've, they've learned from previous situations and they have prepared um, for this sort of scenario. And then some of the countries that haven't done so well didn't have solid plans in place or, you know, the response time is really critical. And so if you lag a couple weeks or if, if it's a hoax or if it's fake news or if it's not really as bad as it, they say it is or what have you, that really accelerates. Um, you, you get off the ground running, you know, it really accelerates the disease transmission in your country. So, you know, here, here we are, um, you know, in, in mid-July. Uh, how are various countries and states faring? And do, do you have uh, any clear insights of effective containment strategies or, or ones that, for that matter, haven't worked? Yeah. Um, doing nothing doesn't work. That's, <laughs> that's fairly evident. Um, so if we look at Sweden, you know, they did not shut down anything. They never closed schools at all. Uh, their rates are rapidly growing. Um, so we know that response and containment efforts are super critical. You know, the U.S. was a little slow on the draw, and then we were quick to uh, reopen uh, in many of the larger, most, most populous states. Um, and so really 
the national response is critical. It, it can make or break the situation. Um, there's an open data initiative called Our World Data, and what it's attempting to do is be transparent, have data repositories that are consistent and standardized, um, completely transparent, people can donate to it, and they have identified countries that you know have promising measures for containing the virus. And what most of those countries have really good healthcare systems in the first place, and they have data infrastructure. In fact, the cities that are on the list are Germany, South Korea, and Vietnam. And those would be um, the countries where we would find some of the some of the best smart cities in the world. So they've already kind of taken that technological plunge, so to speak, and have the infrastructure to be able to to track, you know, do some contact tracing. And people don't consider it an infringement of privacy. They consider it due diligence to their neighbor. I mean, they don't want to hurt anybody. Um, so there's just not a there's not a lot of collective um, infighting in these other countries. Right, or, right. And or not a laissez-faire attitude. <clears throat> Correct. And and the U.S. does have that laissez-faire attitude, and is and is quite divided. In, it um, is pretty in a lot polarized, of by, you know, by party right now. And I don't know if that's just the election coming up, but many of the states where we're seeing you know, rapid outbreaks and lack of state mandated masks, things like that. Most of those are Republican states, Republican led states. So I, I'm not really sure what that's all about, but clearly divisive. Certainly, certainly is. Um, you touched on South Korea, but how about um, uh, Germany has been doing quite well in its process, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Yes, it has the lowest wait times for healthcare in general. They, they've just pretty much perfected that system. Um, and they had early detection and containment. And that is one of the things that have made them super successful. But they also have a robust public contact tracing um, program. Okay. So it's really all about that technology running faster than the virus. I mean, you got to right. get ahead of it, you got to right. be unified, and you've all got to be in agreement. They have it, you know, they just have a really nice public infrastructure that is very community oriented. So it's it's not just the most developed countries though that are, um, or or let's, we, we had talked a little bit about Vietnam. Um, can you touch on some of their efforts? Yeah, sure. Again, they have a well-developed public health system okay. and a very strong central government. So, again, a proactive containment strategy that was based on comprehensive testing, tracing, quarantining. They got ahead of the game, and they were able to, um, you know, almost eradicate it so far. They can. They have the um, tech infrastructure to see what's going on in real time and to make really great decisions using that data, you know, for good, for public health. Hmm. Okay, so the, I think the big question that we're all thinking is, so what is the projected outlook for, for Florida, for the U.S., for the world 
if we continue the path we're on and don't think creatively um, <laughs> to assuage the situation here. There's been a lot of projections. And so, you know, they change daily and we can only go by, you know, the models that are most recent. But some well-known academics are predicting that if we continue to behave the way that we are and nothing really changes, that the total infections um, could be either 15 million, 32 million, or 370 million, depending on um, various timing of countries' uh, efforts or interventions and the windows for, and based on the equator, you know, the windows for the flu season. Right. Um, and humidity now seems to be a predictor. And we're just not sure how the weather is, is impacting it. But we're looking at a, a lot of deaths, a lot of deaths. Um, actually, see, I misspoke about, no, we would have 5 billion infections, excuse me, and up to 370 million fatalities. Which is I, the most significant disaster that the the world has ever seen since we began tracking it. It uh, <laughs> it certainly is sobering that we that uh, you know antibody immunity we don't know how strong it is or if it even lasts very long and you know if the fatality rate is even at one percent that is a huge number. It is, and we know, like you mentioned, there is no gold standard treatment right now. There is no approved vaccine. Anything that that's pushed out is is still going to be a trial, and we don't know the long term implications of that. We don't even know the long term implications of having had COVID nineteen, um, and so that's that's some risky business. We well, not only that, Melissa, make- but I, I also often think you know a, along with the psychological impact of staying home and domestic violence and all the other all of those things that that um, you know uh, come out of this even if a vaccine was available today if it was perceived perceived as being rushed to market or if there was any political angle to it there might be quite a bit of resistance and you might not have I mean, I, I mean, I know a lot of business travelers that say, okay, when there's a vaccine, I'll travel. Well, will you really? Wouldn't you might wait a few months to have to see who else has taken that vaccine? Or so, we might see some additional disparities in those who receive it. You know, we're still fighting, you know, a lot of various outbreaks in Africa. Um, so, yeah. Yep. A long time ago. So let's let's uh, you know we're we're nearing the end of our time. So let me uh, at least close with one big question uh, before any final comments you may have. Are there are there novel ways of thinking, creative ways of approaching this, um, so that you know maybe we can um, surmount some of these obstacles and challenges? I think so. I think so. Um, I I have some thoughts and ideas. And I, what I do know is they're going to have to be novel and creative. We cannot continue to do what we've been doing or have the same um, paradigm of thought and expect something different to happen. Um, I think that you know our best bet right now without a vaccine and with the 
healthcare system overloaded is to contain the virus. You know, we've got to disseminate real news. We've got to utilize the technologies and social media that we have to ensure that accurate, timely information is received by all cultures and languages. And I think we can do that by promoting positive messages, by, you know, promoting unity and cohesion. And we could all be heroes, grassroots heroes, you know, it's putting it in a positive light rather than con continuing to have the um, various conspiracy theories and the doomsday stuff. We've got to we got to put a different messaging on it um, and maybe establishing unique partnerships and devising strategies for behavior modification. Because well, let, let me back up to, to I think one of the largest challenges in in, in your first point um, that we need to disseminate real news. You know, you you watch cable television and, you know, the major cable news networks all have a different perspective. It sounds like you're on different planets. Um, here in Florida, we have uh, an administration and some ex-members of the administration that are saying completely different things. It's right. very hard for anyone, whether you pay a lot of attention or even or a little amount of attention, to try to rationalize and harmonize what you have there to determine what actually is the truth. Well, hopefully we can begin to listen to experts and scientists and um, medical professionals that are in the field dealing with this daily. Um, we've got to rely on, we need to teach people how to discern scammy type data from probably accurate, need to check up on some more. You know, and, and I always ask myself when I'm looking at, at data or a news report, um, does this person have something to gain by, you know, putting this spin or this angle on it? Um, you know, and when, when people don't have anything to gain and they're doing things for just the good of humanity, it, it makes it much easier to believe. Agreed positive attitude that isn't mad at one side or the other side or blame game. You know, we've got to think of this from a systems perspective rather than individual blaming. You know, we've, we've seen some wild times in, in Florida, obviously. Um, but it, you know, your, your comments remind me of Rebecca Jones, who um, claims that she was fired for not misusing the data. Um, and I mean, there's a lawsuit pending to my knowledge, but rather than just give up or, you know, keep saying whatever in the news and he, this is bad and that's bad. She actually developed a community um, dashboard uh, where everything was transparent. There was data dictionaries, uh, methodologies were spelled out very clearly. She allowed um, anybody to submit data, you know, collaborated for partnerships and this was all out of her own pocket or donations so that's one example of i don't know what she would stand to gain <laughs> I, you know she lost a job and i'm pretty sure this is you know running out of a shoestring budget so just that would be an example but we've also seen you know when we don't have national guidance that's very clear and then maybe we don't have state guidance or strategy we do see our communities pick up, you know, take the charge 
which is absolutely wonderful. Any of us can, any of us can make a difference. All of us will make a difference um, in the end. And it's, I think it's going, when you make things real, like relatable, I think data, data storytelling can be really effective also to try to get data out there in a way that's understandable to most people. And you gotta make some simulations that make it relatable. You know, or what if we took all these technologies we have and get all the experts and all the influencers, you know, Aspen Institute, celebrities, I mean, you know, some people, if Beyonce says to do it, then, you know, just to get a very massive grassroots group going to spread the right message, I think might be helpful. And then, of course, we got to start democratizing science and data. It, it needs to be open, needs to be transparent. Uh, it's silly that research articles, you know, the most scientific articles are subscription only. I mean, that's, those more accurate sources should be accessible by everyone so we can all make good decisions. <clears throat> and Agreed. Agreed. Well, uh, Melissa, thank you very much for, for being here with us today. Um, my pleasure. Yeah. Um, before, before we wrap up, uh, I would ask you, would you make available a list of references, you know, in the notes for this uh, podcast? Absolutely. Yeah, I do have a few things I think would be helpful. Um, yeah, I, mean, I would it, like it, to leave with one thing, if that's all right. Go, 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 go ahead. Um, after the Holocaust, we had the Nuremberg trials. And out of that came something we call the Belmont Report. It was designed for research participants, but it's really uh, transferable and applicable. And there's only three simple ethical principles for decision making. And that is respect for persons, beneficence, and justice. And I, I truly think if it's really that simple. If we begin to make decisions with morality and ethics in mind that we'll, we'll beat this as a community. Wow. I, I, I can't think uh, a better way to end on, on that note. Um, again, everyone who's tuning in, this has uh, been uh, Jim Frazier on the Smart City Podcast with Dr. Melissa Wiley. Melissa, thank you very much. Thank and you. we look forward to having you back again uh, in the near future. Thank, thank you very much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, the Smart Cities podcast is the only podcast dedicated to all things Smart Cities. The podcast is the creation of ARC Advisory Group's Smart City Practice. ARC advises leading companies, municipalities, and governments on technology trends and market dynamics that affect their business and quality of life in their cities. To engage further, please like and share our podcast or reach out directly on Twitter at Smart City Viewpoints or on our website at www.arcweb.com backslash industries backslash smart dash cities.